Robotech, The McKinney Project. Celebrating the Robotech novels written by New York Times bestselling authors Brian Daly and James Cena. With your host, JT. Welcome, guys and girls, to this very special edition of Robotech, the McKinney Project, celebrating 30 years of the novels written for the 1985 animated series Robotech by New York Times best-selling authors Brian Daly and James Lucino, known collectively in the Robotech universe as Jack McKinney. I am JT, your host. Our official website, www.robotechnovels.com. We've got the blog up and running, articles, blurbs, thoughts, all related, of course, to the Robotech novels. You can show us some email of robotechnovels at gmail.com is the address open 24 hours a day seven days a week always open for you even though i may not always be there we're also on facebook rumor has it we're also on instagram where you can find all those links www.robotechnovels.com wow january 26 2015 that was the last time I was behind this microphone recording an episode of Robotech, the McKinney Project. The last time I recorded a podcast, period. And so much has happened in those two years. I've changed careers, paid off my car. The Chicago Cubs are World Series champions. Thank you very much. And if during all that time you would have told me, hey, you're going to do another podcast, I would have said, no, not going to happen. But Life has a strange way of happening, and here I am, but it is definitely for a very special occasion. For those listening to us for the very first time, welcome aboard. Thank you for checking us out. You have definitely come at the right time. To those of you that have been here before and also with my previous podcast, The Protoculture Times, welcome back. It's great to have you here again, and I will tell you also, you've come at the right time time. Now, there might be some in our esteemed audience that are asking, well, what is this Robotech he keeps referring to? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We're going to take a trip down memory lane to our very first episode, episode zero, which was titled Pre-Launch Details and where your host tries to explain, and hopefully with success, the history of Robotech. Robotech debuts on American television on March 5th, 1985. It's the combination of three separate, unrelated Japanese animated series. Super Dimension Fortress Macross, Super Dimension Cavalry Southern Cross, and Genesis Climber Mospeda. Now, the original plan from series producer Carl Masick was to bring just the Macross series over to the United States. However, due to the 65-episode minimum for television syndication, that wasn't going to be possible as Macross only had 36 episodes. So Carl, through some creative editing and interconnecting the plot lines of all the three shows, particularly through the mention of the character Rick Hunter throughout the entire series, all the shows were combined into one story. And barring the name from hobby company Ravel, who were selling a line of models of the mecha from the Macross series, Robotech was born. Now, 
base of the Robotech story is Earth and humanities fight for survival against alien invaders searching for a mysterious power source known as protoculture. The series divides itself into three acts or generations. The Macross Saga, the Master Saga, which is also known as the Southern Cross Saga, and the New Generation. Robotech was a bit different from the animated shows for its time, the mid-80s. It dealt with a lot of things that for U.S. animated television made it groundbreaking. It wasn't your normal Saturday morning cartoon. There was the evolution of its characters throughout the episodes and their personal struggles as they dealt with triumph, loss, love, war, and especially death. And on a grand scale, people are literally killed off and in mass quantities at times. And this came from the Japanese animation, whose style was always willing to push the envelope visually and from a storytelling standpoint. And of course, what made Robotech famous was the mecha. Transformable and non-transformable giant robots were the bread and butter of the series. From 50-foot ostrich-looking giant machines, planes that had not one, not two, but three different configurations, to a transformable motorcycle that was the dream Christmas gift of this particular Robotech fan, it was a unique combination of action, emotion, and storytelling, one that made Robotech very su successful in its television run. To this day, fans all over the world still watch the series, whether it's through YouTube or different media that the series has come out on over the years. As of right now, when it comes to YouTube, there is a transfer of license distribution as of right now, July 29th. Uh, so it's not on YouTube right now, but it's been said that it'll, it will be back on soon. I will link the episodes on my website, www.robotechnovels.com, once that's completed. And if you want to watch the series again, or if you want to watch the series for the very first time, you can. Now, through the years, the Robotech saga has seen its universe expanded through comic books, graphic novels, role-playing games, and even most recently, a tabletop role-playing game that's going to be coming out at the end of the year. And, of course, the Jack McKinney novels. To listen to this after so much time has passed and thinking about how different life was back then compared to now... It's just really impressive. It's just really impressive, but it's really good to reminisce with how things started with the podcast, all the excitement you can hear in my voice. And even though the original plan for this podcast didn't turn out the way that I envisioned it, I'm damn proud of what I've done. So, uh, yeah, really, really a reminiscing moment right now. But getting back to our main subject, the Robotech novels, they were first published in 1987, released on February 14th, 1987 to be exact. And how do I know that? Well, I've kind of been there since the beginning. Let me explain. I first watched in 1985 Robotech the Animated Series on WPWR Channel 50 in Chicago. And in 1986, I left the country to go to school in Ecuador. And lo and behold, the series debuted down there in Spanish, of course. And let me tell you something about Robotech in Latin America. I think the biggest fan base for the show is down there. Countries Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay. 
it was con- it's considered a rite of passage in Latin America if you were a kid in the 80s to have watched Robotech at least three times. That's how popular the show was. And when I came back to the States for winter break, it was on February 14th, 1987. And the very next day, I went to the North Riverside Mall in North Riverside, Illinois, which is actually still open, and I went to the Walden Books. And I was just kind of on a whim thinking if there were any books on this show that I had become a big fan of. And when I went to the science fiction section, right there on the top shelf, staring right in my eyes, were the very first four Robotech novels. Pretty spooky, huh? Some people might say fate and destiny. Some people might say coincidence and luck. Personally, for me, it was the beginning of a very special journey that has lasted over 30 years. The Robotech novels, 21 editions in all, were published between 1987 and 1996, penned under the name Jack McKinney. Now, for the longest while, readers, including myself, thought that Jack McKinney was just one author. Well, in a small paragraph in the 18th novel, it was revealed that this was a pseudonym for two gentlemen, New York Times bestselling author Brian Daly and New York Times bestselling author James Lucino. Now, if you're a fan of Star Wars, Star Wars literature to be exact, these names should sound familiar to you. Brian Daly, being one of the first authors to expand the universe of Star Wars in novel form with his 1979 best-selling series, The Han Solo Adventures. And then he took on the grand task of scripting the radio dramatizations of the original trilogy, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi for National Public Radio. This production included original cast members from the movies, such as Anthony Daniels, Mark Hamill, and Billy D. Williams. And James Lucino, who has had an incredible almost 20-year journey in the Star Wars Expanded Universe, and who has said that that opportunity in Star Wars was because of his involvement with Robotech. And quite a journey that it's been, with titles such as The Unifying Force, Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader, Millennium Falcon, Darth Plagueis, and he was one of the first authors to be requested by Disney when they took over the Star Wars franchise to write novels for their new continuity, and he did that in 2014 with his novel Tarkin. Brian sadly passed away in 1996 due to cancer, but his legacy lives on in the Star Wars universe and, of course, in Robotech. If you're able to get your hands on the radio dramatizations of A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, I recommend them highly. It is a treat, especially to hear some of the original cast members on that production. And something that was told to me by his wife, Lucia Robson, when Brian was ill, the cast members did a series of recordings, a series of get well messages for Brian, which was really a touching gesture. And hopefully by the time that you listen to this podcast, some of those get well messages that were recorded will be over at www.robotechnovels.com. Just a real testament of how much Brian was loved. Jim Lucino, who I've known for several years, continues to write for the Star Wars franchise, and this includes his most latest work, Catalyst, a Rogue One novel, which is the lead-in to the most recent movie in the Star Wars franchise, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And what does the future hold for Jim Lucino when it comes to Star Wars? Well, even he does not know, but 
If I'm a betting man, I would definitely say that we'll probably see another Jim Lucino Star Wars novel in the future, and that's a good thing for Star Wars. When it comes to the Robotech novels themselves, the first 12 books that were published were an adaptation of the 85 episodes in the animated series. Now, while an adaptation, really the books created a universe of their own when it came to character development, scenery, the action taking place, including adding scenes and characters that you didn't see on the animated series. Also, there were ambitious concepts when it came to the technologies involved in Robotech. Now, after the first 12 books came the five novel series called The Sentinels. Now, this was an adaptation of a canceled animated series that Robotech's producer, Carl Masick, was working on, which he called Robotech 2 The Sentinels. Based off of his notes, Brian and Jim basically ran with it and completed the series. Jim Lucino, under the Jack McKinney name, wrote three novels that basically bridged the three acts in the Robotech series. Macross, Southern Cross Masters, and New Generation. So those are called the Lost Generation novels. They did not appear on the series. They were not part of any animated series. Some of the uh, content, though, was inspired from Robotech comics that were written by Mr. Bill Spangler. Then we come to the final book in the Robotech novel saga titled The End of the Circle, which happens to be the title of the episode of this podcast. And the intent of End of the Circle is to tie up all loose ends in the Robotech story from everything else that was written before. Here, everything was going to come to a conclusion. And it did come to a conclusion of sorts. The intent was achieved in its own unique way. And what it also did, and I'm not going to get into the whole end of the circle story, but what it did do for Robotech was make it a circular story, which meant that when you reach the end, it's the beginning. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But it is a novel that even after some 20 years that it's been published, still has fans talking, uh, whether it was praise or hate for it. I think with the Robotech novels, there's really no gray area. People are going to like them or people are going to dislike them. Well, there you go, guys and girls. A little history on the Robotech novels and the gentlemen behind them. For 30 years, they've been entertaining fans like myself. On a personal note, I can go back to the Robotech novels again and again and again and again. And I've actually done that for 30 years. And it doesn't get old. And I'm actually doing it again for all the stuff that I'm doing on social media celebrating their 30th anniversary. Each time that I read the 21 novels of the Robotech saga, I pick up something new. I also wanted to extend a personal invitation to everyone to check us out at www.robotechnovels.com. We've got the blog up and running with articles on a wide variety of subjects, characters, technologies, locations, what-ifs, dissecting selected excerpts, even a video presentation or two, all of course related to the Robotech novels and their authors. Because to celebrate the Robotech novels is to celebrate Brian and Jim. I'm having the time of my life doing this because the articles require some research. So I'm going through the novels again, as I said before. I'm finding out new stuff. 
And after 30 years of reading the books, being able to find new things that I had not noticed before, it's a treat. And you guys can tell in my voice that I'm like a kid in a toy store. Um, I'm just loving it. I'm just loving it. And check us out. Check us out and join in on the fun. You can also find the links to our Facebook page and our Instagram page as well. We're doing stuff there too, so we're spread out. And of course, it's for the 30th anniversary. 30 years only happens once in a lifetime. And for me, I'm uh, I'm taking advantage of it to have the grandest celebration that we can. And I think there's only one other way that we can make this Robotech novel celebration complete. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you guys and girls have read the preview to this podcast, so you know what's coming next. But guess what? I'm going to lay it on you as a surprise anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, Robotech the McKinney Project proudly brings to you, in honor of the 30th anniversary of the Robotech novels, a sit-down interview with New York Times best-selling author, one half of Jack McKinney, and my good friend, James Osino. You have no idea how long I have wanted to say that, and I can't think of any better way of arriving at my end of the circle for this particular Robotech journey than with this interview. And to Jim, who I know is listening, thank you. Thank you doesn't even begin to express my gratitude. Thank you to you and Brian for the Robotech novels, for taking an awesome story and making it that much more special. Thank you for thank you for your time over the years. Thank you for this interview. I cherish our friendship, and I say this in the interview, but it merits saying again, thank you for, since I've known you, for being a constant source of positivity and good vibes in my own personal journey. You really can't can't put a price on that. And all this, Robotech the McKinney Project, it's not it's not so much as about Robotech as it is about you and Brian. And I wish there was another phrase, another word other than thank you, but I can't think of it right now. So thank you for thirty years. It's been an incredible ride. The interview itself is about an hour and 15 minutes long, and in it we talk about so much stuff. We talk about the Robotech novels, of course. We talk about Jim's involvement in the Star Wars franchise. So if you're a Star Wars fan, you're definitely going to get your fill here. You can't have a Robotech novel celebration without talking about the other half of the team, the late, great Brian Daly. And in the interview, Jim shares an awesome story about an adventure that he and Brian had. And all I'm going to say is Nepal, Sherpas, and Star Wars. It's a great story. You guys and girls are definitely going to love it. We talk about a wide variety of subjects during the interview time. And at the end, Jim answers my most important question that I have ever had about the Robotech novels. He put 20 years of doubts and questions to rest with one answer. And... Woo! <laughs> you could tell in my voice that I, I really have no words other than to say thank you to everybody for joining us here on Robotech the McKinney Project. Enjoy the interview. Much love. Kick ass. You guys and girls take care. Welcome guys and girls to this very special Robotech the McKinney Project interview. 
Back on February 15th, 1987, a younger version of myself walked into a Walden Books and saw in the science fiction section four books with the title Robotech. It was an animated series that I first watched in 1985 while living in Chicago, and then again in 1986 in Spanish during my time in Ecuador. Little did I know that those four books would lead me to 30 years later celebrating their anniversary on a podcast. Robotech fans came to know the author as Jack McKinney. We found out later that it was two authors, New York Times bestselling author, the late, great Brian Daly, and my guest at this time, a New York Times bestselling author himself in the Star Wars universe, loves to play guitar, builds log cabins, and of course, the co-author of the Robotech novels, James Lucino. Jim, welcome. 30 years. It's 30 years. That's that's very scary, John. That is. It's been that long, but it's my pleasure to talk to someone who has done as much for Robotech as I've done. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you. Well, thank you for the kind words, Jim, and thank you for being part of this milestone. Do you still have fans like myself asking you about the novels? Um, yes. Uh, occasionally, uh, some, you know, an email will come in, but when, where I really, um, meet the fans is, uh, or has been at, at various, um, Star Wars related events at Celebration and most recently at Comic-Con, you know, I'm sitting there uh, signing Star Wars novels and, and suddenly someone will come in with uh, a couple of Robotech books to sign. So it's just always a thrill when that happens. Awesome. Now, where did the Jack McKinney name come from? Uh, actually, really, uh, literally, it came from a toolbox. Uh, my father was... Uh, a carpenter, as I was for a time, and uh, a friend of his uh, had the last name McKinney, and it was stenciled on a toolbox, which I inherited from my father. And when it came time for Brian and uh, for, for us to create a pseudonym, I looked at that McKinney name, and I, I liked the look of it. And uh, for, at that point, Jack McKinney was born. Was it publishing company Del Rey, who has been the publisher of the novel since the beginning, were they the ones to make the pitch to Brian and you, or was it Robotech series producer Carl Masek that made the initial contact? Uh, as, as far as I know, um, Carl contacted – well, I, actually, I'm not sure about this. It, it could have worked one of two ways. Carl uh, – Harmony Gold may have reached out to Del Rey uh, when they were looking for – a publisher to publish the adaptations of the uh, of the series, or uh, my friend, my good friend Risa Kessler, who I just ran into after like 25 years at Comic Con New York. She may have um, found Robotech on her radar, thought that it was going to be it, it would make for an interesting novel series, and reached out to Harmony Gold. I'm not really sure what happened there. Um, but I know that it was Risa, uh, who was, who was the intermediary between, um, myself Brian, and Brian and, uh, Harmony Gold in the beginning. How did those initial meetings with Carl Masick go? Uh, they went, they went, uh, better than, you know, we thought they would go. Um, we were flown out to, to, um, LA from, from the East coast, um, and met with Carl who was, uh, I think I've said this before, was wearing a, a jacket that James Dean had, had worn in Giant 
and and Carl had picked up somewhere. He was a real nostalgia buff. Um, he was expecting two very sort of uptight New York writers. So when Brian and I showed up in jeans and just T-shirts, uh, everything got very relaxed right away. And uh, we all sat down and started talking about comic books and science fiction um, novels and uh, started watching the episodes and really discussing how uh, Robotech could be adapted and, and, you know, as a series of novels. So it was uh, it was terrific. Now, for listeners that don't know, Robotech is comprised of three separate unrelated Japanese animated series, and these were put together by Carl, and that's where we get Robotech. In the writing process, did you and Brian use any of that source material from Japan, or was it just strictly the Robotech episodes? Back then, it was strictly the Robotech episodes. We we had no... Um, Access to the Japanese anime, I'm not sure they had even been um, translated into English. So even if um, we had uh, seen the animation, there would have been no way to um, decipher what was going on. Um, Carl did provide us kind of with a rundown of what those separate animes were were dealing with. But of course, by by then, he had, uh, you know, sort of... um, he had overwritten everything and imposed his own vision on those three series when he merged them. Um, so uh, basically, it was, it was it, in some sense, it was safer for us to stick with uh, Robotech the way we came to it. Now, the animated series lasted for 85 episodes, which was told in 12 novels that you and Brian did. How did you guys divide up the work? After uh, we came back... From L.A., we were out there for about two weeks, just watching the episodes, speaking with Carl, just getting a handle on on what he wanted. And we, we came back and we started to try and uh, figure out how we were going to break it down. Um, I think the initial work was mine in the sense that um, I, I got a handle on the, on at least the, the Macross saga pretty quickly and figured that... Um, it, we could adapt it very easily in 12 books. So I, I sort of cobbled together um, a very rough outline that would um, sort of point us, would, would give us just this kind of a sketch about what each book would cover. And we figured since the publishing schedule was so tight, meaning that Del Rey wanted to release one book each month, we didn't, we didn't have, a, we weren't going to have a lot of time to write that the best approach was for uh, Brian to take one book. I would take the next book. Brian would take the, the following book. And um, we would uh, hand off the manuscripts to each other so we could uh, not only um, maintain continuity, but try and find a common voice because our styles as, um, as writers uh, were very different at that point. So, um, Brian got started on book one. I got started on book two. And when we both finished, we, we swapped books. Um, we did some edits. We did some rewrites and then moved on to three and four. Was the initial task just the books for the series itself? Or was there more in mind after you and Brian adapted the 85 episodes? Initially, uh, Carl made reference to the Sentinels and his grand vision of having, you know, just this um, 
enormous body of animation that would repeat on television like three times a year and would be very sort of circular in the storytelling. Um, but he didn't give, he didn't provide us with a lot of information about the Sentinels as we were, uh, working, you know, when we started to work on, on Robotech. Um, really that didn't come into play until maybe a year later, um, after the Robotech books had performed sufficiently so that Delray wanted to renew its license with Harmony Gold and, uh, published the Sentinels, which by then had been dropped as a as a TV series. Now, as you guys are putting together the story in print form, does Carl Masick restrict anything in terms of content, or does he give you a free hand in the direction the novels go? He uh, he stayed away. He he sort of. Um, I think after our initial discussions, he had faith that we would. Um, that we could adapt the series in a way that would be uh, the adult version that he was um, envisioning. Um, he was the one who suggested, he kept talking about Dune. And I think um, my hearing, you know, him talk about Dune was the, was what led me to um, deciding that I thought it would be a good idea to have um, epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter, the way Dune does. Um, he, he, we, we sort of checked in with him occasionally to, to run by, you know, run by him things that we wanted to change, but he was really hands off. He, he really let us do, uh, what we wanted. And that really continued even, um, into the Sentinels where I think he was a little bit bummed out that, uh, the financing had collapsed on the series and, uh, he, still gave us a lot of leeway in terms of um, where we were going, what we wanted to do with the novels. The novels introduced concepts and directions that were not part of the animated series and which were controversial for some, and we'll talk about controversies later on, but one that does stand out is the incorporation of the concept of the thinking caps, which in the novels are special helmets that receive the thoughts of the pilots and go hand in hand with the manual control of the mecha in the Robotech story. Whose idea was that? I think I'm trying to remember. I think it was my idea. Um, uh, and Brian didn't have any problem with it because again, we were trying to be a little bit more, I, I, you know, realistic is a crazy word to use when it comes to adapting a series like Robotech. But, uh, I think we were having trouble trying to figure out how, um, a pilot would interface with a mecha. And, and it seemed to us that it had to be more than just uh, throwing uh, a lever, you know, just to, to have a, a mecha transform that uh, there had to be something um, bigger going on. So uh, that's what led us to thinking about helmets that would be some sort of neural interface. I know it became really controversial and we didn't really think that it would stir up that kind of controversy. I suppose, you know, if you're watching uh, the animation and that's, that's what happens in the animation, you throw a lever and you're going to a different, uh, different mode. Okay. Um, but, you know, we ran with it because it seemed uh, appropriate for the, um, 
level of the novels in terms of readership and that we were trying to maybe um, bring in a little bit more of classic science fiction. So that's really really how that evolved. Now, another concept in the novels was the shapings of the protoculture, and it's referred to a lot in the novels. In the animation, protoculture is the main energy source for the mecha in the series, and in the novels, it turns into kind of a separate entity with its own destiny to fulfill. How did you guys come up with that concept? Uh, yeah, that one I have to take uh, full uh, responsibility for. I, I just... Um, I, and I really don't know what the germ of that was. I just began to think that, you know, as I, as I got deeper and deeper into the saga that I, I kept feeling, um, as if there was some sort of destiny at work. And I don't want to use the, the, you know, the term the force because it's too much like what I'm into now, but, right. but it felt to me as though there was an overriding um, power. And, um, you know, especially when I started to learn more about the flowers of life and, and, uh, everything that Zor was doing, I just started to think about this kind of, not predestination, but this notion of a different, um, level of life, a more evolved life kind of guiding, guiding what was going on. I, in some ways it's, it reduces, um, the actions of the of the human characters but but i think in some sense you know they were helping to fulfill a bigger plan so yeah that felt uh, that that was that was mine but Bri- again brian was was okay with it so um and i got to sort of expand on it as i sort of took over the novels um after he dropped out of the series no You touched upon this a little bit ago. It's my favorite part of the novels, and it was the fact that each chapter started with an epigraph citing different fictional sources. You and I had an interview back in 2010, and just going over my notes, you had mentioned that there were almost 80 fictional sources for these epigraphs, like private journals of some of the characters, excerpts from encyclopedias, biographies, a whole bunch else. How did you guys come up with that process of you know, deciding what to put as an epigraph and the process itself. Uh, I think, you know, thinking back to it, it was, um, I mean, I, I can only speak to myself cause I'm not sure how, how, um, I started that ball rolling and then, um, Brian picked up on it, but, uh, I would just, uh, finish a chapter, finish writing a chapter, adapting a chapter, if you will, and um, then I would begin to think about what, you know, fictional commentators might have have said or, you know, have, have remarked about that particular incident. Or sometimes when I was using the journals, you know, it enabled me to sort of get into the heads of the characters um, in a different way. If I wasn't showing their point of view in the in the in the chapter. I could at least give a point of view in the epigraph. Um, I, I had so much fun with those because it, it just um, allowed the saga to grow even, you know, even larger. And uh, it, it was one of the 
one of the aspects of writing it that that sticks with me. I just had such a great time with it. I've always called the epigraphs the Robotech fan fiction's dream because you could draw so many stories from that one excerpt at the beginning of each chapter. <laughs> so, so great idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, we had mentioned before Carl wanted to continue the Robotech story with Robotech to the Sentinels. Only three episodes were uh, completed in animation, and the project didn't go any further. But you and Brian, the story lived on through five novels after the initial 12. You've got Robotech, like Star Wars, takes its readers to different worlds. And with the Sentinels, you got taken to worlds where there were grizzlies, foxes, Amazonian women. As a science fiction writer... What's the process of creating a world like? That sort of world building? Well, I have to tell you that like that, I was really new to, I mean, I really was cutting my teeth as a science fiction writer on Robotech. Um, Brian had been writing science fiction since uh, the mid seventies. And I had been writing uh, mass market. So I, when I came into Robotech, I was really leaning heavily on Brian in terms of learning about world building and all the rest of the stuff you're, you're making reference to. Uh, some of that, when we were given uh, the script, it, they, they weren't given the scripts, but we were given the, the, the treatments for the scripts by, by Carl. It was all in a spiral bound notebook that uh, each of us uh, got a copy of. And, um, so some of those worlds were already described in a way that uh, just allowed us to enlarge on what the original, the, the vision of the original screenwriter. Um, you know, since that time, I, I've learned a lot about about world building um, just through Star Wars. But uh, back then, I was just you know, like I say, I was really cutting my teeth, and I and I leaned a lot on Brian for suggestions about how to make those worlds come alive. Now, mentioning Star Wars, I would be remiss as an interviewer if we didn't if we didn't talk about your involvement with the with the franchise from a galaxy far far away. Uh you I mean where to start? The 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 work your works uh spanned are we talking like 20 years now? Uh, we're talking about maybe 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have, you have novels like the new Jedi order. Uh, you've actually written a few for the new Je- Jedi order. You have labyrinth of evil, star Wars, dark Lord, the rise of Darth Vader, millennium Falcon, Darth Plagueis, Endgame, Tarkin, and your most current catalyst, a rogue one story. How did the opportunity with star Wars come about? It was all because of Robotech. Um, it's, I, I've told this before, but what happened was, um, you know, be, uh, when the, when the license, the Star Wars license was held by, uh, Bantam Books, they, uh, were doing limited, they would do a limited series. They, they would do maybe a trilogy, but a lot of their novels were standalone novels. So when they surrendered the license for whatever reason and Del Rey uh, reacquired the license to publish Star Wars novels, um, the thinking both at Lucasfilm and at Del Rey was, well, let's do something completely different. Let's create 
a you know a, a an epic series. It was originally planned to be like twenty five books long, and uh, I was asked by my editor at Del Rey to come to to join that project because of my experience with Robotech. So when I went out to Lucasfilm for the first meeting to discuss what would turn it turn out to be the new Jedi Order, uh, I was just there as a consultant and I didn't even um, have a contract to do a book. Um, but they asked me if I wanted to contribute a novel to the series, which I, I did. I ended up contributing three novels to that series. And um, as I say, 17 years later, I'm still contributing to the franchise. What was it like to work with George Lucas? Because until a few years ago, he was it when it came to what what he accepted for the Star Wars story. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of um, misinformation about uh, George uh, George's participation. Basically, he drew a line between what he was doing in the films and what he would do with future films and what was being done in what's called the expanded universe. Uh, for, for instance, for the new Jedi order, uh, the big ideas behind that series regarding some of the characters, we did have to have his uh, permission to do certain things, you know, some of which some ideas he nixed right, right away. But he had very limited involvement. He, he really he created a team uh, to oversee the novels, and it was, a se- it was separate from what he was doing with the films. It was also separate from what was going on with the, um, the video games that eventually came out. There was some, t- there was some crossover with uh, comic books and some of the other things, but... Really, um, he always reserved the right to contradict uh, anything that was done in the expanded universe uh, in his in his films. And I mean, it's it's really clear when you see uh, the Clone Wars uh, TV series that you know he he just took a lot of those uh, plot lines in a completely different direction. So I mean, it was it was always his franchise. We were just participating in a very uh, in in a somewhat limited way, you know, telling side stories and telling stories that um, always were at risk of being overwritten. That actually leads me into my next question. Working with such core characters in the Star Wars story, were there any difficulties in the creative process that perhaps an idea that you had was not going to be acceptable in the all-around scheme of things with the Expanded Universe? Yeah, I you know when you're when you're in the midst of of writing, you don't have that in your head, or you'd probably never be able to you know a writer would never be able to finish what what he or she was working on. Um, th- there's always this thing about franchise that you never you you or you shouldn't a writer shouldn't get too attached to um, to the work because it can change. I mean, even you know, right up to Catalyst, um, most recent book I've written, you know, I had to go, I had to make a lot of changes because the movie was changed. And so you learn after 
after um, some experience just not to, you know, hold too closely to your ideas. Um, the, I think that the real, I, the real idea is to just create um, a, a good story. And whether, whether it ends up being canon or not, um, it has, the story has to sort of stand on its own. Now, George has since retired from the franchise, and it's been taken over by Disney. With that came an entire reboot of the Expanded Universe, which has now been relegated to what's called the Legends Universe. You're one of the authors that has been part of this, I guess you can call reboot, with your last two novels, Tarkin and Catalyst, a Rogue One story. Any significant difference working with George versus an entire I'm sure there's more people involved um, with Disney. Well, yeah, there there is there are a lot of differences. Fortunately, uh, both Tarkin and Catalyst uh, are set at a point where I have gone into those projects feeling as if I'm still writing in what is now the Legends universe. I haven't really had to uh, contradict. Uh, a lot of um, what was in Legends, I've um, I've almost I, I almost feel like I'm I'm in the, I'm still writing uh, in the old expanded universe. I don't know uh, what it would be like or whether I would even really be interested in writing uh, in the new canon, The Force Awakens, and this this the the new the new saga. I mean, I know that. Uh, couple of writers have made the transition along with me. I haven't really had a chance to talk to them about what their feelings are. I think, for instance, I think Tim Zahn is in a really interesting uh, position because uh, he really was the one who who kicked Star Wars into a whole new gear back in the 80s. And uh, he, has a, he has a new Thrawn, no- Thrawn novel coming out that also is set in a time where he doesn't have to contradict what he did in his his earliest trilogy. Um, going forward, I'm not sure what would happen if he was asked to actually overwrite something that he had written, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, so I haven't faced that yet, and I've been I've been fine with the the books that um, I've contributed. Now you've been given the task of writing the backstories of characters such as Emperor Palpatine, Grand Moff Tarkin, and of course the original Star Wars badass Darth Vader. A lot of Imperial characters there. Was this by your own design that you wanted to do these, or you just got lucky and Lucasfilm said, go? <laughs> I don't, Well, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't by, by my design. I just... Um... I don't know. I fell into that. I mean, in the same way that I sort of fell into the niche of um, writing books that uh, tied directly into the movies in one way or another, either as a prequel or a sequel. Um, I don't know. I don't really know how that happened. And I, I've never really like um, asked the people at Lucasfilm whether they really they have me in mind for for certain projects because of, you know, my my history with 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 certain books but it's been really great for me because i enjoy um writing novels that tie directly into the films it becomes more of a collaborative process with lucasfilm 
where we get to sit around and um, talk about different ideas and, you know, really uh, it's close in some ways to closer to screenwriting than it is to writing novels. But um, I don't mind being over there on the dark side. It's been really interesting. Now, reading the novels, Darth Plagueis, Tarkin, and especially Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader, what I find similar is that while technically these are the bad guys, you actually get into their psyche and motivation into their individual rises to power where they kind of take on a role of the anti-hero and you feel a sort of empathy for them and in some cases root for them. Was that an intention? It, it was. I mean, I don't know how else to do that. I mean, if you're just um, writing about an evil character without sort of giving that character his or her own voice, um, without bringing, bringing that character to a point where they can justify their actions and not see them as evil, but see them as part of a, a you know, a greater plan. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you, you would get people to uh, continue reading the novel. I mean, if it's your only, if the, if the evil guy, I mean, I, I don't know what to compare it to. Maybe um, there are some novels that work with, with purely evil characters, but I wasn't interested in doing that. I was trying to provide a uh, different perspective. I got to ask, what was it like to write a novel about one of the most iconic ships in all of science fiction, the Millennium Falcon? <laughs> well, I, I was, uh, was a lot of fun for me to think through the possible, the history of the Falcon, but that's another novel that I think is likely to just um, be overwritten I'm, I'm really curious about the, the next, um, standalone, uh, film, which is after, you know, Rogue One, which is going to be this, uh, Han Solo, uh, film and which they've got to go into the history of the Falcon. So I'm guessing that the screenwriters have some very different ideas than what I had back when I wrote that novel. So. Uh, you know, a lot of fun to think about, a lot of fun to write, but also very likely to be just sort of an alternative take on what will now be canon. Now, when it comes to alternative takes, and when we talked back in 2010, you had said regarding some of the main characters that there was only so much you could write about a Han Solo or Luke Skywalker and that you would have liked to give their story arcs a conclusion, which you, you kind of sort of did in, in, for me at least, in a, uh, a unifying force. Now we fast forward to 2015, and with the release of the first movie in the Disney era, Star Wars The Force Awakens, what's resulted from that is that we're going to be getting more Luke Skywalker in the next movie, The Last Jedi. But we also saw the demise of Han Solo. Going back to you wanting to give uh, the characters some sort of conclusion, was killing off characters part of your vision? Uh, no. I mean, when we had the original discussions, of, in, when we were talking about the New Jedi Order early on, uh, we sort of jointly arrived at a decision that Chewbacca would die. Um, we weren't really interested in killing off um, principal characters, and really in the unifying force, I didn't. 
I didn't want to kill them off. I wanted to give the sense that uh, their big, their story had been told and then they could go off into their kind of retirement um, the, in the same way that some, you know, television shows do that, like whether it's Cheers or Seinfeld or whatever else. You just get a sense that you've, you know, seen, um, you've been able to stick with these characters for a certain part of their life and then they go on to whatever else. So, no, I didn't want to um, kill anybody off. And I mean, as far as The Force Awakens, I mean, I think it's really interesting for to me, um, without George's involvement in Star Wars right now, um, I, I almost feel as though uh, this is a new... Uh, expanded universe this is this is now a different group of writers who are you know these movies are like franchise movies they don't have george's direct involvement so they're the writers and producers directors are free to tell a completely new story did you see the force awakens and if you did what did you think of the final product i did see it i i enjoyed it um, I, I think like some other people, I did, I do feel that it was, um, something of a retread. Um, there were some, you know, high level of fan service here and there, but I, I was, I, I like, I enjoyed it. I, I thought that the, uh, the acting was great. It was a big moment for Han. I know that Harrison Ford has wanted to get out of the franchise for a long time. So big moment for him. Um, I think going forward, it's that that uh, the trilogy is going to get more and more interesting. Um, I've been privy to um, a couple of uh, developments for uh, The Last Jedi. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, I, I you know, I think I think it's great that Star Wars is, is still here after all these years. You wrote Labyrinth of Evil, which is a lead in story to episode three revenge of the sith and your most recent novel catalyst a rogue one story is a lead into the most recent film in the star wars franchise rogue one now it's been reported and honestly you can see the differences between the trailer and the final release of the film that many reshoots were done now i'm sure that this affected your writing process am i correct to assume that oh yes of course it did uh, you know, when you, when you go into, I was, I was writing the novel, the, the prequel as the film itself was coming together. So I knew that there were, there were going, there were, you know, something was going to come down the road that was going to affect what I was doing. Um, yeah, the, 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 the movie, um, the emphasis in, in the movie changed a lot. Like Krennic in the, in the early drafts, Krennic was, um, had, had a, a larger played a larger role um the imperial uh designer of the death star or the organizer um and the relation his relationship to the scientist um galen urso was a little bit different so you know of course i was writing the novel based on the original shooting script when that shooting script changed um i was forced to really re- rework a lot of the novel but um you know it, it ended it ended up okay it's it's always it's always difficult you know when you're doing when you're doing these tie-ins even if even if it's a novelization uh for you know you're you're working from a script and 
you're basing your novelization on that script and all of a sudden there are changes, dialogue is cut or uh, reshoots take place and you have to be ready to go in and make some um, sometimes major changes in what you've done. Orson Krennic is a bad guy, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is a bad guy. I mean, he's, uh, but I, you know, I really, I had a lot, uh, I had a good time with him in, in Catalyst. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he, he's, a, he was an interesting, uh, bad guy for me to write in the sense that he doesn't have any force powers. He's not a dark sider. And he, he really is not like Tarkin, um, being just the, the consummate imperial. So, uh, it was a challenge, and I um, I had a good time with, with with creating that backstory for him. Did you see Rogue One, and what what did you think of it? Yeah, really, really enjoyed Rogue One. Um, even you know, even with all the changes, I I wish that uh, you know, I mean, just personally, I wish that Krennic had gone out in a different way. I didn't like the fact that you just sort of get shot, and he's laying there on the on the uh, on the walkway there. Um, I wish he'd had a bigger moment. Uh, I, I wish that he had been a little bit more the way he was in the um, original draft and, and not being pushed around so much by Tarkin and Vader. But uh, I think I, I understand why the, why those choices were made. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the movie. Now, some of your books, including, including, uh, Catalyst or Rogue One story have been done in audiobook format. Were you involved in that process, or and what do you think of the audiobook format as a genre? I, I think that um, they've done a great job by incorporating special, you know, special effects and audio effects and everything to really um, bring the books to life. I I'm, I have no involvement other than uh, occasionally I'll get an email or a phone call asking me about the pronunciation of, of a name of, of, you know, a character or a planet that I've created. And, um, but beyond that, uh, I have no involvement. What do you look at as a star Wars, I guess, fan, what do you look forward to with this new reboot, this new continuity? Well, I'm hoping that, well, <laughs> I really can't speak uh, too much to this. Uh, I, um, it, it, uh, let me just put it this way. It's being taken to a very, very interesting place. Um, it, 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 what's coming is probably going to surprise a, a, a lot of people. But um, if, if I was writing um, in, that, um, in that saga, it, it's definitely what I would have jumped on as well. Well, we see Jim Lucino return to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. John, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. Um, you know, I, I, I've always taken these books like one by one. If Lucasfilm, you know, contacts me or if I have an idea. Um, so I really, I really don't know what's next for me, especially in that franchise. Here with New York Times bestselling author James Lucino celebrating 30 years of the Robotech novels. And to celebrate the novels, of course, is to celebrate Jack McKinney. And I would be remiss as a fan of the books if we didn't talk about the other half of the team. Your longtime personal and close friend and co-author of the Robotech novels, Brian Daly. A New York Times bestselling author in his own right with the Han Solo adventures and authoring the scripts for the original Star Wars trilogy radio dramas. Jim, what was Brian like? 
he was uh, a, a great friend. He was an amazing writer. He was a writer. He was a writer who um, could sit down at a at, literally at a typewriter and just have this fantastic prose just pour from him. Uh, he was extremely well informed, uh, and beyond you know beyond his talents as a writer, he was uh, funny. He he was he had a great singing voice. He could dance. He was often the life of the party. Uh, just a, an all around um, an amazing guy. Now, were you both writers when you met, or? Yeah, uh, we met through um, our mutual uh, girlfriends at the time, who were waitressing uh, together. And Brian had just completed his first novel, um, which was called uh, Doom Fairers of Coromond. And I had just completed my first novel, which was called Headhunters. Um, and Brian sold that novel to Del Rey. Um, it, was, it was bought by an editor named Owen Locke, who became a good friend of both of ours. And uh, really, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, if it wasn't for my meeting Brian, my friendship with Brian, and eventually with Owen, um, I'm not sure I would have been able to sell my novel, but eventually Owen persuaded someone at Ballantyne to buy my novel, and then we were off and running and had sort of parallel careers there for a while. Now, during the Robotech novels process, were there any debates between you and maybe back and forth on what should be done and what should not should be done? Because, I mean, you guys are working closely together for a lot of books. The only time that came up was with End of the Circle. And, um, you know, we were on our own by then. You know, we didn't have the Sentinels to fall back on. So we had to conclude these series, this this, uh, this long saga, uh, based on, you know, just our thinking of, you know, what we put into it. For, for those um, all those previous books, and uh, that was that book was a little different in the sense that I wrote the first half and then handed it off to Brian with some thoughts about where I thought it should go, and my thoughts were informed by conversations that I had had with Carl Masek uh, in terms of where he thought the series should go because he had very clear ideas about uh, this circular ending for the saga and, uh, and where he wanted the characters to end up. And Brian kind of took that in his, his own, um, his own direction. And we didn't have any arguments about it because, um, you know, I mean, while I was really invested in it, I also was, um, very respectful of him as a writer. So it was up to him to take it where he wanted to take it. I, there were certain things he did with like Lancer that I might not have done. He would just made choices that I might not have made, but I think that, uh, you know, in the end, uh, our, our friendship, our partnership was more important about our arguing about, um, small things in that final novel. Your friendship involved travels together. Where did you guys go? 
Uh, oh, we were all over the place. We we spent time together in uh, Peru. We were uh, spent a lot of time in Mexico, in Guatemala, in um, Nepal, in India. You know, we we had uh, quite a few adventures together. I, I don't think that you know it, Brian used to always tell me he he wasn't he wasn't really a traveler in the sense that he loved getting out in the world, but he didn't like the idea of my going off on these adventures and then his missing the opportunity to have an adventure of his own. So he (laughs) would, uh, you know, he would come along sort of begrudgingly. Um, But we, you know, we ended up having some, some great times. Now, something I've been wanting to ask you about for a very long time Over the years, I've had the pleasure to chat on social media with Lucia Robson, Brian's wife, and she had talked about a rather unique adventure you and Brian had, and I wanted to get a first-hand account about it. And all I'm going to say is Nepal, Sherpas, and Star Wars. The floor is yours, my friend. Uh, Yeah, that was was pretty interesting. Um, This was back in 1983, in the fall of 1983. I was, uh, yeah, I, I left for Nepal for, for reasons I can't discuss without my lawyer present. And uh, Brian, um, of course, wanted to come along on that adventure. And we hooked up with um, a, a small group of people, maybe 10 others, uh, for a 30-day trek. And uh, about 10 days into that trek, we hit an incredibly bad patch of weather that sort of um, forced us to just sort of huddle in our tents for five days while freezing rain fell. And uh, the Sherpas that had been helping us with our gear and everything else, they were uh, lowland uh, Sherpas, and they were really literally on the edge of hypothermia, so they just basically abandoned all of us um, up at the Tibet border. Uh, to get back to warmer and drier weather. So when the rain stopped, we were forced to sort of go hut to hut up there near the Tibet border to find other people who were willing to act as Sherpas for us and, you know, help with the tents and the gear and the cooking and the rest of it. And, uh, these guys up there are they were serious mountain men. I mean, these are the kind of guys that you know carry um, curved knives uh, on them at all times, and they warm them by the fire, and they put them in their cummerbunds to keep themselves warm. So they were a really um, interesting, almost uh, piratical group. But they they decided to um, help us uh, with with our gear and tra- you know the transport. So wherever we went from that point, um, it was really interesting when we came into um, campsites in Nepal because some of the other um, Sherpa groups, when they got a load of these Highlanders with their weapons and everything, we've always got the choice campgrounds, which was fantastic. Um, they were just uh, a, a group that like no one really trusted uh, either for fighting or theft or whatever else. But anyway, they accompanied us all the way back to Kathmandu at the end of the trip. And one of the things that was waiting for Brian when we got back to Kathmandu was a telegram from Lucia. Telegram, how's that for dating things? Anyway, (laughs) a telegram from Lucia saying that Brian had been given the okay 
to adapt Return of the Jedi as a radio drama. This had been going back and forth for a long time, and he was absolutely thrilled. And uh, he, he, <laughs> let me put it this way, he, he was in a very celebratory mood. Um, and so one of the things he, he wanted to do was throw a party for all of these mountain guys who had accompanied us for the second half of our journey. And in wandering around uh, Kathmandu, we found a video store that had a copy of Return of the Jedi on video. I mean, the, the movie had only been released in May. Right, 83. Yeah, and here it was, you know, like October, and someone had gone into a theater, probably in India is my guess. Somebody had gone into a theater with a camera, probably an 8-millimeter camera or something, and just basically, you know, filmed the film, and it had been put on a video. So Brian, of course, snatched it up and um, and had a special screening of Return of the Jedi for all of these mountain men who, who had helped us. And it, it was a riot because I don't think they could make any sense of, of what they were seeing, but um, just the notion of these Ewoks with these you know, primitive weapons and dropping walkers and doing all the rest of the things that they did just really appealed to them. And we just had a great sort of drunken, drunken time with all of these guys to, uh, to finish up the trip. Now that is the definition of a good time. Brian Daly, sadly no longer with us, passing away in 1996. How did Brian face that stage of his life? Uh, I think, uh, you know, Brian was um, a, a, in some ways a larger-than-life personality, but was, he did not really want to talk about that uh, ending that was forced on him, you know, way too soon. Um, we did have some talks, but, I mean, Brian had a lot of life left in him and I think was um, – as devastated as the rest of us were, uh, that he had, you know, fallen prey to, uh, in his case, pancreatic cancer. So it was just a really, really rough time for, for all of us. Brian was definitely taken from us much too soon, but his memory lives on with stories like these. And I really want to thank you for this particular one, as I've always wanted to hear about it, and it was quite an enjoyable one. Pleasure, John. Have you ever found yourself wanting to write something other than science fiction? Because from our interview in 2010, I remember your first novel was about the Peruvian drug trade. Uh, yeah, I mean, I started off as a writer of sort of action adventure. You know, my novels were set, many of my novels anyway, were set in the um, in the real world. Um, and, you know, I've been with Star Wars for a long time, and I, I do have some ideas, but I notice now that... Um, even even the ideas that are sort of fomenting my my brain um, tend to be sort of science fiction ideas. So I may you know I, I may just uh, stick with that for for a while longer. And and it's funny because really I don't read science fiction. I read um, mass market fiction or you know what's called literature. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me that, that that's where my mind goes. And I don't think it's just, uh, Star Wars. I think I've always been sort of interested in where, 
um, were headed. So, I mean, maybe more of a futuristic novel rather than a classic science fiction novel. Uh, so who, I don't really know, John. As a writer, do you see the digital age with electronic books and the internet ultimately replacing the good old fashioned hardcover and softcover books? No. In fact, the trend, um, has reversed itself from, from everything that I've heard. Um, genuine books, you know, real books have made a comeback and, um, hardcover novels are outselling, um, ebooks now. I think it's just, um, there is great convenience to having a Kindle or being able to read, you know, on whatever device you have, but there's, oh, there's just something about, um, having a novel in your hands, having a book in your hands. I mean, maybe it goes along with, um, the fact that, um, you know, LPs have come back too. Vinyl, vinyl is selling really well as opposed to uh, download. So I I think there's, there's something to that. There's something to having like this, you know, physical, you know, piece in your, in your hands or putting an LP on a turntable. Um, something about that, that just elevates, uh, the, just ele- elevates your experience. Old school is making a comeback, it is. Jim. It is. <laughs> uh, how do you view the current state of science fiction writing? I, you know, I wish I could comment, but again, I don't really read very much science fiction. I, I, I have a few favorites. I still read um, anything that William Gibson uh, writes or Neil Stevenson, but I really don't have a good handle on. Um, What's happening in science fiction in general? Best advice that you can give to aspiring writers in any type of genre, either doing it for fun or wanting to make it a career? Well, you know, for me, I, I've always viewed writing as um, as daydreaming of a, of a sort. I mean, I, I always start with a story. It's just my proclivity is to, to begin with a story and then to people it with with interesting characters. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of approaches. I think, you know, as many people have said, it's something that you have to, uh, writing is something that you have to make a part of your life in the same way you would playing a musical instrument or, uh, working on a canvas. You've got to make time for it. You've got to be really serious about it. I think it's great now that, you know, you can, you can self publish that, um, you know, there's lots of, lots of outlets for writers. They don't have to rely on major publishing houses. Um, there's no one approach that really works. I think it's just it, it, it comes down to a measure a uh, measure of, of one's commitment to to the project. Again, whether it's writing or music or art. Any plans for an autobiography? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, I don't feel that I've lived that interesting life that, uh, you know. Oh, come on. <laughs> no. no. Okay, we're going to have to disagree on that okay. one, but there's always hope. <laughs> Do you find it easier? Have you found it easier to write for Star Wars or Robotech? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I will owe, you know, Robotech just occupies such a great space in my memory because like I say, it was, I've, I said before, it was really where, um, I cut my teeth. I really learned to write when I was writing those Robotech novels. And it was just the other thing that was great about working on that, uh, those novels was that, uh, suddenly I had this contract, you know, for six novels, which, which turned into even more novels. And I was able to stop doing carpentry and I was able to really, 
live uh, like a writer, which was which was something I'd been dreaming about for for years. So uh, I don't think that there's anything that's going to measure up to that, you know, that time I had with um, with Robotech. Now coming back to Robotech, we've talked about the first twelve books. We've talked about the Sentinels. We did talk about End of the Circle. Uh, you wrote three additional novels under the McKinney name, and which connected the three main sagas of the show, and those were Zentradi Rebellion, Master's Gambit, Before the Invid Storm. While they do have the classic Robotech elements, these books were really driven by the secondary characters, some of which only would appear in comic stories, which I I personally saw as refreshing. Was Was that an intent with you writing these books? Yeah, I mean, you know, with um, Zendrani Rebellion, um, Bill Spangler, of course, had had, um, had done some initial work on those with the comics. Um, I think what was happening there was sort of Robotech was ending, and I was starting to feel my way back into just writing novels of whatever sort. And um, so... I, again, it was a good training ground for me because suddenly I was writing these um, these fill-in novels, or in some sense, prequel or sequel novels, which was great training for where I've ended up. Um, I, there wasn't it wasn't deliberate on my part, but um, I was really, uh, in retrospect, especially, I'm glad that I had the chance to kind of fill in those those uh, those gaps in the saga. With the Zentradi Rebellion. As you had mentioned, part of the story was taken from something Bill had written, uh, Robotech, The Malcontent Uprisings. This was the longest novel in the series, and the story takes place from several different locations. Getting to know you and your travels over the past few years, were the locations inspired from personal experience? Yeah. I, I You know, that, that was... Um... I wish I had really, you know, more vivid memories of writing that novel. I remember that, uh, yeah, it turned out to be much longer than I thought. I was bringing a lot of, a lot of locations in, in Brazil and the Amazon and places I'd been. And I was in some kind of weird zone when I was writing that novel. And, uh, you know, it was great to have a leg up with Bill's, uh, malcontent uprisings. Um, just kept growing and growing and allowed me to really approach a lot of those characters in a way that I hadn't done um, in the the strict adaptations from the animation. One more question about Zentradi Rebellion. There are some Robotech fans who are vocal about the treatment of Robotech's Southern Cross saga, and this extends to the novels as well. One of the points is the portrayal of the character of Anatole Leonard. In Zentrani Rebellion, he's kind of Fifty Shades of Grey before Fifty Shades of Grey became popular. Uh, do you remember what made you go in that direction with the character? You know, I John, I don't really remember. But, you know, we were doing, as, as Brian and I got deeper and deeper into it, I think we just got a little bit... Um, you know, we kept getting looser and looser, like when we created this character, Lang. You know, we just started to um, get very experimental in, in what we were doing with the characters and decided that nothing was off limits. 
So there was something about Leonard that I thought lended itself to, you know, this bigger than life, nasty character. Um, and, you know, I just went with it. Fair enough. And for those Robotech fans that have wanted to know, now you know. <laughs> I will say this. If there were ever another Robotech novel, you and Bill, you and Bill Spangler, I think would be the ideal team up. I don't know why, you know, I mean, yes, I, I definitely feel that way about Bill. I don't, you know, there, Harmony Gold is always trying to sort of reignite the franchise in one way or another and um, why they would look to anyone else other than Bill, I don't understand. Um, so, you know, maybe that will happen. Now, the last book that was published before the Invid Storm, that was back in 96, were there any plans after that? Because we had talked about this in our interview in 2010, that pretty much the curve for Robotech was coming to a close, but was there anything else that was perhaps in the works? No, I, you know... I have, I've got this sort of vague memory that I pitched another another novel, and I <laughs> so I don't remember what it was, but I think I did have one more book in mind. I'm going to have to like you know look through my old notes and see if I can get back to you about what that book was. But I think that the um, the notion that um, Del Rey was you know there was sort of declining sales at that point, and they decided to that to just wrap it up, you know, that they didn't, they weren't interested in doing another one. Now there's a couple of things that I would really like to get your quote unquote definitive word on. And the first of these, and I'm going to read you from a list. Thinking caps aren't real. Why is Min May sleeping around? Why is Leonard such a sexual freak? Why aren't you truer to the show? Thinking caps aren't real. Your dates are all wrong. Why didn't you leave the Zentrani micronized? Five-year space fold? And my all-time favorite, thinking caps aren't real. I have called this throughout <laughs> the years the nitpicking. I imagine you get it in the Star Wars universe as well. With Robotech, it's been 30 years. People are still mad. Uh, <laughs> Jim, yeah. What is your definitive word on the nitpicking? Uh, you know, I'm going to be really gracious here and say that, you know, everybody is entitled uh, to their own opinion. And I, I understand that when you are looking at the source material and some author, you know, has has veered from that, that, you you know, you have the right if, uh, to to be angry about it, especially if it's just an adaptation. But in defense of what we did, um, we were asked to veer. We were asked to to enlarge, to expand on, to to change things to make it more of a novel experience. So I don't, you know, regret anything that we did. I, I you know, the dates thing. I don't. I who knows? Maybe because we were writing so fast, we you know we screwed up on some of the dates. That one I will consider a nitpick. I mean, if thing if people have Issues with um, Leonard, well, yeah, I still get that, those same sort of comments about the way I depicted Darth Vader in, in Dark Lord. Um, there's, there's always going to be, you know, if, if, you, can, if you can claim 100% of your audience, you've really done something remarkable. 
So I just accept it as as part of uh, again that perilous world of, of franchise, but I wouldn't change anything that we did. And you know what? Looking at it now, it's a testament to you and Brian. It still gets people talking. Just saying. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. The second thing, and I'm going to try my best to keep this one professional out of respect for you and Brian, as I have my own personal thoughts on this. Over the last decade, the Robotech novels have come out in omnibus editions for the first 12, and then in 2013, all the books, minus Master's Gambit, came out in electronic book form. The owners of the Robotech franchise, Harmony Gold, decided to make some alterations to the writings you and Brian did. Changes in dialogue here, dates changed there, appendices, and these changes were done to supposedly tie in to their animated feature released in 2007, The Shadow Chronicles, which, ironically, unlike the novels, is an incomplete story. That being said, my friend, your thoughts on these changes. Well, there's there's uh, there's two ways to approach this. Legally, they, as license uh, licensors of the property, they own that material. So, in some vague way, they have um, the right to rework certain things. On another level, I think it's unconscionable that they would choose to uh, change a writer's words without getting permission from the writer. So uh, it's not worth a legal battle, and I'm not even sure that um, there's a legal leg to stand on, but I think that uh, it, it, it does a disservice to the original intent of the books. It does a disservice to what Brian and I did, and uh, even if it is in their their realm as licensors to to be able to alter that material, uh, it certainly shouldn't be done without uh, conferring with the the people that wrote those words. Jim, you have put that in better words than I ever could. Have you kept up with the current goings on in the Robotech franchise? Well, Bill and I are good friends, and uh, most of my information. Um, you know, comes from Bill. I know that uh, I'm, he was uh, filling me in on that weird um, Robotech uh, Voltron hybrid that was was out there for a while. And I, I think there's some um, new comic series in the works. I'm not sure if um, if the writer of that series has been announced. So I don't want to say anything um, out of school. Uh, so I so what I get I get from him. I'm really you know. It's. I, I find it very sad that the franchise uh, didn't. You know, it should be Robotech rather than Transformers out there. It should be Robotech versus you know rather than Pacific Rim. I don't know what happened there that that uh, Robotech kept getting overlooked or superseded or you know stolen from in one way or another. Um, it's it's sort of sad. Currently, Sony Pictures has the rights to a Robotech live-action movie. Whether or not it will be made remains to be seen. Fans have been waiting since 2007 when Warner Brothers first had the rights, and now it's Sony Pictures. However, if things were to pan out and Sony were to reach out to you regarding a tie-in, prequel, or movie adaptation novel, would Jim Lucino return to the helm of the Robotech novels? 
Uh, I well, I would love to participate in Robotech again, but again, it would be. Um, I'd have to think hard if there was an entirely new continuity. I, I you know, it's the same issue I have with um, with Star Wars. I don't know how comfortable I would ever be in overwriting something that I'd already written. Um, you know, I, I would love to. It'd be really great to come to come full, full circle like that. But I, I'll tell you something. I don't think that that would they would ever reach out to me because. Um, on a lot of these projects, you you don't go to the people that that had a hand in it originally because you're looking for a new vision, and um, a lot of producers and Hollywood people feel that you, they're just uh, setting themselves up for all sorts of problems if they reach out to someone who had been too close to the original. That's interesting to know about Hollywood. <laughs> I didn't know that. Almost at the end of our interview with New York Times bestselling author James Asino, I want to wrap this up with some rapid-fire questions, which I call the Trivial Pursuit Questions, James Asino edition. Favorite place you've traveled to? Favorite place that that's a, you know that's a tough one. That's like favorite song, favorite movie. I mean, different countries for different things. I, I think one of the most um, Exotic places I've ever visited is Ethiopia. Always, you know, has a strong place in in my heart. But I mean, the countries that I keep returning to are in Latin America. I love uh, Mexico, Guatemala. Um, had a great time in Kenya uh, this year. Um, someplace I had visited in in the early '70s and finally got to return to. Uh, wonderful country. Um, this, this, but you know, again, it's 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 really difficult to say favorite because um every every country offers a different experience place you haven't been to yet that you want to visit uh sicily looking at it right now could be an inspiration for another book just saying (laughs) favorite tune to play on the guitar Let's see the song I go back to on the guitar all the time. I, I you know, um, again, I, I, you know, have a hard time with the, this favorite notion. Um, the one that that has me this week is the um, the wonderful bass bass playing by James Jamerson to uh, the Four Tops song Bernadette. Book you've read that you can go back to again and again. I think it's always going to be Gravity's Rainbow for me. Maybe it is. Um, a little bit uh, generational, but I love what Pinchon did in that um, in that novel. And I don't think uh, a year goes by when I don't open it up and and dig back in. Are we alone in the universe? As an intelligent life form, I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, I, I suspect that we are are going to find life in the universe. Um, I don't know. I don't know at what level. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a, it's a strange thing when you when you think about all of the conditions that had to come together for human life to evolve on Earth. Um, I suppose, given the number of planets out there, those conditions uh, could have occurred elsewhere. Um, I think it'll start small, though. Maybe just. Um, Finding that there's life on uh, another world, and even if even if it's only a simple life form, and then we go from there. What would your occupation be in the Star Wars universe? 
You're probably a smuggler. That leads me into my next question. Who shot first? Han or Greedo? Of course Han (laughs) shot first. In one sentence, describe the adventurous journey that is called life. Constantly eye-opening, surprising, sad, fulfilling, inexplicable. And the most important question of all, whose idea was to, was it to kill Britai? <laughs> I've been wanting to ask that for 20 years. That did not come from Brian or myself. That was in the original script book for the Sentinels. I don't remember. No way. I don't remember the, um, the author of um, the writer of that particular script. I'm not sure I even I even knew because the script book didn't break it down so that we knew um, which writer was responsible for which episode. But that was not ours. So even though you know when when we did kill off Britai, much like when Chewbacca was killed off by um, uh, Salvatore in the New Jedi Order, I mean, boy, did we get hate mail on that one. And with the answer to that question, I can finally live in peace. I'm glad, John. I want you at peace. For 30 years, the Robotech novels have told an incredible story to its readers. To be able to sit down with one of the gentlemen behind that story, any words that I can say right now would not do it justice. And I can't think of any better way than to cap off my own personal journey with them with this interview, my end of the circle, so to speak. In 2010, you had a glass of wine. In 2017, I'm joining you with a glass of wine in my eyes. All right, let's lift the glasses. The first toast goes out to Carl Masick, Robotech's producer. Thank you, Carl, for Robotech. Mm-hmm. Thank you for trusting in yes. Brian and Jim to take the story further. The franchise and the fandom miss you dearly. Yep. To Brian Daly. Oh, I'll lift that, I'll lift that glass very high. Mm-hmm who I really believe has been with us during this interview. I hope so. May we follow you on that path of light that you're on so we can catch up on things. And to you, my friend, Jim Lucino, thank you for being so gracious with your time. Thank you for this interview. It's, it's something I'll never forget. And on a personal note, thank you for always being a source of positivity and good vibes in my own process. Well, I appreciate that, John, but I write back at you for all you've done for for keeping the memory of Robotech alive and uh, just for the friendship that you and I have formed. And thank you to all of you for listening to this podcast. It has indeed been an honor and a privilege to be able to entertain you, drive you nuts, or royally piss you off. Whichever it was, I'm extremely grateful for. My work in any case is complete, but I will leave you with this. It's not about the destinations in life that you reach that are important. It's the journeys that you take there that are. Much love. Kick ass. You guys and girls take care. JT out, baby. For more information on the Robotech novels, visit us at www.robotechnovels.com. Robotech is a trademark of Harmony Gold.